what does it mean to talk effectively to people who might have checked out about hearing things about the climate emergency? I get it. I get it. It's hard. It's scary shit. People don't want to know things that are really, really bad and that we have to move super fast, like right now, like now, now, like quicker than what I just, when I started the sentence fast. If we want to stand a chance of literally getting out of this alive, what if there was another way to communicate about this colossal hyper object of a problem, a problem so big and so impactful that it's kind of everywhere and yet nowhere all at once that trying to hold even a part of it in your head can cause your brain to shut down or in my case, pretty much explode into sickness. Well, thankfully, my guest this week has found a way. David Finnegan is a leading Australian writer who has been at the forefront of climate change research and writing for more than 20 years. His new play, yes, his new play, debuts this week at the Belvoir Theatre in Sydney. It's called Scenes from the Climate Era. And if you're listening to this the week it comes out, there's a two-for-one ticket offer. In the show notes, you'll see a link. Use the offer code CLIMATES, plural. Now, while you do that, Click on it right now. You do that. I'm going to play some ads. And by the time you bought your tickets, we'll be back with David Finnegan. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Every day is another opportunity to kind of minimize the damage and hasten the journey through the kind of chaos but but we're certainly in the chaos now and there's no getting around it so now the challenge has shifted right we're not trying to avert the catastrophe we're trying to find a better build a better world from within the catastrophe we have to kind of remake everything you know we have to we have to remake our our energy system our transport system our uh, agricultural system and our educational system and we have to do that in the face of rapidly escalating shocks and political opposition so it's not a small job but it's it is kind of like it is the job we've been given for our lives i guess that was climate researcher author and playwright david finnegan this is osha ginsburg better than yesterday
Hello, welcome. Thanks for being a part of the show. I'm Osha Ginsberg. This is Better Than Yesterday. It's a podcast that's here to make your day-to-day better than yesterday just by having conversations with people. We've had conversations with people from all over the world, from all walks of life, some of them best in the world of what they do. And every one of those chats will leave you with just a little something you can use that'll make your day-to-day feel a bit better than it did the day before. Because I learn something every single show. And I love that about this show. And if we're not growing, if we're not learning, then what are we? What is it to be alive? It is to grow and it is to be challenged and it is to respond to stressors and have an adaptation response. And that is what we're here to do. I'm Osha Ginsberg. I'm a, I'm a podcaster. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm clearly still not better from like, um, I'm also the host of a pathogen, which my beautiful son brought home from the daycare. Oh God, was it daycare? I don't even know. You know, sometimes you do something real big and and then you get sick afterwards. Well, we had the massive live show for the NTN and then last Friday at the factory in in Sydney. And then on the other side of that, I, I did a charity bike ride, motorbike ride on the Sunday in an open face helmet. So I was, I was dealing with all the kind of stress and anxiety of getting people in the door and, you know, making sure the show went well and technically that everything was okay. Technically, it's very fucking finicky to make. And there's lots of shit that can go wrong and did. Uh, but we still worked. And then I, you know, breathed in the air of Sydney <laughs> in a seasonal change. You know when the seasons change and all the shit gets in the air? Wearing an open face helmet as I, as I rode through the city. And then come Monday, I was fucked. <laughs> Just... No word of a lie. And I've been that way ever since. It's like six days later and I'm still cooked. It's been a while since I've – I did a COVID swab, you know, cow 2021 of me. I did a COVID swab, but no, it's not that. So I'm just – yeah, no good. Um, But I'm getting there. I'm I'm on the – everything that you can get that isn't uh, antibiotic because it's it's viral. It's not, you know, infectious. Yeah, so I'm – kind of handling that. Uh, I need to get better though because I've got <laughs> shit to do on Saturday. This Saturday, it's our, our show at the Newcastle Comedy Festival. We're trying to collect the whole set. We've done Melbourne Comedy Festival, Sydney Comedy Festival, Newcastle Comedy Festival. You're next. June 3rd, NTNN, NNN, the, uh, the live fake news show that we've been doing on stage. It's tons of fun. We've had a cracker of a time. If you want to know what it is, just listen to the show on Friday. That's a bite of what was last Friday's show. The tickets are in the show notes, and we're bringing the full show. We're not stinging. Like, we're bringing everyone. We're bringing everything. It's the dream team. It's like a full-strength production. We're not fucking around. And the special guest is really special, too. Uh, our special guest has a very special story as well, which I'm really, really, really excited about. I like doing this news show, and part of, of the reason to make a show about the news where we can laugh at just the preposterous shit that goes on in in our community, in our society, and how it's not only reported, but just like how the really wild shit isn't kind of spoken about for what it is. Because the news is a big part of why I feel that we're in such a fucking clusterfuck with our climate problem. Like it's, you know, tiny. If you've read the book Merchants of Doubt, you'll know what I mean. But one of the reasons I wanted to start the show was like, we're going to have to having start having conversations where we truly, really talk about the and explore the full impacts of the policy that we aren't putting into action or the policy that we are continuing to follow, even though it's probably not the best thing to do. And that's kind of my way of putting those thoughts out there into the world. And I found through doing this show and, you know, it's something that I've 
brought onto the into the show because it's something I found my whole career. You're never going to change someone's mind during a conversation. Well, it's rare that you're going to change someone's mind during a conversation, particularly if they identify quite closely to the thing that you're trying to change their mind about, whether it be being vegan or being Catholic. I am one of those things and I have been the other at one point. However, if you get them to laugh while making a joke that calls into question one of the central tenets or beliefs of that, thing. That laugh, that laugh is Leonardo DiCaprio whispering to you in a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream. And that just, you know, that idea pops in there and it just kind of swells around for a bit. Now you might explore it. You might go, you know what? I thought about that. Nah, not for me. That's cool. But it's able to get in there because I've found that otherwise it's just people shut off and they don't want to hear it. And um, I'll tell you more about that later this week. I had a, a Interesting run-in with someone today, a stranger, but I don't have time to tell you about it today, but uh, it's another reason why I created this news show because, yeah, public misinformation is a fucking dangerous weapon, and I, I saw a victim of it today, and it was really hard. It was really, really hard. However, speaking of an informed community, a community that knows everything they need to know about what is going on and what is going to go on, I'm so grateful I got my guest on the show this week. Let me tell you about my guest today. David Finnegan is an accomplished Australian playwright, climate researcher, and author who has been working in this space for over 20 years. His theatre work is visionary, to say the least. Among his notable plays is a, a fantastic production called Kill Climate Deniers. Very interesting. Um, I encourage you to check it out. It is a bold and very audacious play that quite cleverly um, weaves together politics, climate change, activism, and, and somehow media, uh, because it plays a role. And you know it's good, because when Andrew Bolt gets upset at your play, Kill Climate Deniers, then you know it's doing, that's a KPI metric that's ticked off the box. In fact, David worked Andrew Bolt's uh, upset at his play back into the play. And they started referring to it in, in the comedy of it all. It's, it's, it's very clever. He's a very clever guy. He's got a new play. It's called Scenes from a Climate Era. You'll hear him talk all about today. And it's having previews at the uh, Belvoir Street Theatre this week. There's a two-for-one offer code in the show notes. Just click on the link to grab your tickets. Now, I, like a really, I really enjoyed connecting with David. He challenged me on some things. I was quite challenged by some of the things he said. I pushed back on some of the things that we talked about. But I, don't, I definitely got the sense that we both felt safe enough that we were able to kind of move around in that space, engaging in conversation that I felt that was good for both of us. And it left me with equal thoughts of feeling horrified and hopeful, if that's a thing. I, was, I am both. I can be both. I am both. David is a very, very clever man, and he clearly thinks about this stuff a lot. And it was really interesting at the end of the conversation, you'll hear how he lets go of formally, I'm not going to say it was righteous intention, but, you know, it's definitely a drive that I completely, you know, can relate to. It's like, oh, people aren't, you know, taking action on climate because they just haven't been told about it in the right way. How can I reverse engineer the words and the look on my face and the tone of my voice so they change their mind? And he, he talks about something along those lines and he talks about letting it go. And it's actually quite wonderful at the end. Now, we're not all going to write plays about climate activism, but 
hearing how he lets go of wanting to be the resistance is fascinating and hearing the joy and you know it's, it's real i really encourage you to get to the end of this because it's you can't skip ahead but then some of the stuff we, we talk about won't make sense look like i said he, he talks about this and thinks about this stuff a lot and if you are and i, I relate because i was and sometimes still am if you are struggling with the I don't know, constant overwhelming amounts of completely fuck all being done in the space around climate action, you know, at the speed and rate and volume that is as quick as we need to do it so the frogs don't fucking die, well, then you might actually find some solace in listening to David, maybe even listening to me, just hearing two people talk about things that I know were swelling around in my head, but I'd never heard them with anyone else. And some of the things I was too, I was too reluctant to speak with because I knew that I was kind of crazy at the time. And if I spoke about it, it wouldn't sound like I was making any sense. But I've learned how to speak about that stuff and learn how to be okay speaking about it. If you want to know how I felt after this, a couple of weeks back on a Friday, you heard me talk about what was going on in my body at the end of this conversation. So I would encourage you to go back and check that out because I like to keep an open book around how I'm going around this sort of thing. And if this conversation is difficult for you to hear or you're reluctant to engage with it, I would encourage you to do so because it was in the disengaging and it was in the running away and it was in the being too afraid to understand and listen and consider what it is we're in and what it is we are going to be in. And if we're not careful what it is when we might be in, it was in running away from that that made it all a lot worse. It was only in learning how to be with it that I was able to, I can now sleep at night. I'm not even, I'm not, that's no exaggeration. I'm just so grateful that we had a chance to chat. I'm, I'm very happy that we had a chance to speak. But I do talk all about everything that went on. So there is talk in this conversation about psychosis, suicidality, and some other pretty gnarly effects of climate change that aren't really making the graphs and reports just yet. They will, but they're not getting there just yet. So enjoy this conversation with David Finnegan. I'm grateful to speak with you today, David. You are in, you're in Stuttgart in Germany uh, as we connect, uh, which is a long way away from where your play is about to debut in Sydney. What took you so far away from opening night? Uh, my partner's doing a residency here in, in Germany, so I've come across to, to to be with her for a bit. And then I'm, but I work in in London as well as oh, Australia, so I'll be heading over there after this. Magnificent, and, and, uh, yeah. My bro- yeah. my younger brother, I'm two of four, and my younger brother went to uni in Tübingen, uh, which is um, in I think it's near. Germany, near in where you are right now. And I remember 20-something okay, years ago when he was there, he was saying there are that the Green Parties were so powerful there that there were people who on bin night would walk down the street and offer you a, a, a free ticket to the policeman's ball if you put the wrong thing in your bin. And 20 years ago, for me, that was like, oh, my God, that's like really taking this recycling thing a whole other step. You know, being in that environment, being in that culture, like, do you feel, oh God, Australia was so far behind, or do you think, oh, there's hope? What do you, what do you, what, what do you feel? God, I mean, it's a different, it's a different context, isn't it? They're in a, you know, they're, they're obviously politically long way ahead in some ways, but Australia has its own unique challenges for a country that has its, uh, its, its sort of political system been effectively captured by fossil fuel lobby for a few decades. Australia is doing as, as well as it can. And, you know, Germany's certainly not perfect either. 
but um but yeah so hang on you where are you now on the kind of uh, <laughs> on the on where am journey? i now oh dude i like had full-blown fucking climate anxiety to the point where i experienced episodes of psychosis i was like it was terrible man like it was really oh, bad man. the idea that i would even speak to you about this 10 years ago would have sent rivers of shit flooding into my office um i would have been terrified mm-hmm. um it's still not fun having this conversation, but uh, it's a part of the exposure therapy that I do now. I'm no longer on the antipsychotics or anything, but I went proper fucking crazy. Mm. And it's kind of weird because I've read other stories about people who were diagnosed the similar way that I was diagnosed and all, and you know, the way I look at it is I was experiencing what I think is probably a, a rational response to the enormity of the problem, but I was experiencing mm. it all at once yeah. and to a problem that wasn't quite here yet but the challenge between not ending the way that i was convinced it was going to end and and where i was was so overwhelming because i couldn't just couldn't get it through my head how it could possibly end in any other way um i have Mm -hmm. since i still do a lot of work around this i still have to you know but to to prep to speak to you today god man i'm i trained so hard that i think my you know my central nervous system almost shut down i was lifting so heavy things but i i need to do that to release the amount of stuff into my body to allow me to shift mood states and so having conversations like this is really important and it's really important for people to hear and i think the way that you know in the in the play scenes from the climate era you is these tiny little snippets of of life and it really struck me, you know, reading about the play because I think this morning I was sitting there reading the news on my phone and, oh, by the way, at some point in the next five years, we will experience the hottest year ever recorded. It is going to happen. And that year is probably going to be enough to mean the barrier reef will end. Scroll, mm. scroll, 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 footy. And, you know, there's everything else as well. My kids got croup, you know, the fucking, we're, we're out of corn tortillas. Like there's all kinds of other shit going on. <laughs> so I kind of love the way that you normalised that, the, the chaos of having trying to hold all of it at once. How did you come to that as being the, the, the message that you wanted to put out in this work? <laughs> there's, it's very flattering to say that there's a message because I actually don't think there's any kind of... Uh, there's anything so sophisticated to the message, but where this piece came from was that, um, you know, everything feels like it, it shifted in the last sort of say five years. Now you've been, you've been kind of grappling with this for a long time. So I'm sure and maybe you, maybe you've had a similar experience or maybe, maybe not, but from my perspective, so I've been working in this space for 20 odd years. And before that, obviously we've been talking about this for maybe five decades, for about 50 years, but around 2018, it really felt like everything suddenly broke loose. So, you know, in, in, polis, in politics, suddenly the political conversation shifted. We had the post-Paris Agreement. Governments and businesses started signing up to net zero in a big way, you know, sincerely or not. And then within activism, at the time of the school strikes, Greta Thunberg's Friday's the Future Movement, the Extinction Rebellion, suddenly there was this huge new wave of activism, bigger and more extreme than anything we'd seen before. Then in the sort of science and technology space, if you were reading science journals at the time, you would have seen scientists suddenly start putting forward solutions and ideas that even five years earlier would have been too extreme to debate. And then within climate denial, we saw fossil fuel lobbyists shift from the kind of classic denial of the last 30 years to this new form of greenwashing and predatory delay. 
And then, you know, in the real world, climate impacts hitting harder and faster than any model predicted. So, you know, for the last few years, I've just, I found this dizzying, like this shift in conversation. So I started trying to write this show purely to capture some of the, all of the things unfolding in all these different spaces, policy, activism, science, climate denial, frontline. And, uh, and so the only way I could really bring all these together was in these short snapshots. There's no single story that captures that you know, constellation of, of chaotic stuff like you described. You, you, I mean, I, I remember, I'm old, right? So I remember the, I think it was called the Montreal Agreement where the world went, oh, CFCs are going to deplete the ozone layer and fucking, oh, yep, we can figure out a way to get rid of that. And real fast, that, that mm. happened. It was debated and happened. And unfortunately, chlorofluorocarbons weren't so in, intuitively coupled into the economic system of the world, so it was easy, easy to sub them out. Uh, but there was, you know, that was the first time that ice caps melting and seawater rising and, you know, out-of-control bushfire seasons and things like this started to get into the public consciousness. And I was 12 or 13 at the time. Mm. So it's kind of always been on my mind and certainly the amount of land that's required um, to feed us the way we currently eat was a mass. And water, that was pretty much the 98% of the reason that I stopped eating meat mm. and any animal product actually the compassion stuff came later because i've met some really lovely cows they're beautiful things uh but it was usually it was only really about the you know protein per acre and liters liters Mm. per kilo essentially it's fucking bananas Mm -hmm. where and i thought well i can't be a part of that what was it for you what was it for you where did when did you first start to go ah this is interesting i need to do something about this or i'm interested in this you're a little older than me, so I don't remember the Montreal Protocol when it happened. I would have been sort of four or five years old. But around that time, my um, so my dad is a climate scientist. He's an atmospheric researcher. He studies turbulence. And, um, and so I remember 89, I'd say I would have been six years old. And my dad had to go through media training. So suddenly a lot of these climate scientists who in the 70s and 80s had been, you know, completely off the radar doing their incredibly uh, doggy work that no one was paying attention to cardigans and blackboards and, and fun and times with helium because you're putting the balloons up you know it's fun <laughs> yeah, exactly but um suddenly they started getting invited to go on tv yeah. to talk about the greenhouse effect and you know these these scientists are not media people and then uh really out of the blue really unexpectedly they started getting hit by these very sophisticated very um very high level attacks from pundits who would who would kind of you know attack their character and and call out science and and just sort of come at them in this really sort of intense unexpected way and these scientists to begin with had no idea what was going on they had they had no kind of concept of this uh, sophisticated coordinated campaign of disinformation but very quickly they realized okay this is not we're not just being invited to go on tv we're actually having to kind of fight for our lives yeah. here and so a lot of scientists my dad was one had to undergo media training to teach them how to deal with dishonest journalists so one of my early memories is my dad coming home from work with a, a tape that he'd recorded at work that day. They'd got in a, a professional journalist to come into the, to the climate lab and, and interview these journalists and try and trip them up and so they could see where they got it right and where they got it wrong. And I remember watching this um, and seeing my dad kind of grapple with trying to explain the greenhouse effect and trying to talk about was it was just as we were shifting from using the word greenhouse effect to global warming. So that was really kind of part of the, the, the conversation in my family growing up. And I saw my dad and his colleagues all kind of get drawn into this mess. And some of them, you know, thrived in that space. Some of them became really sophisticated media personalities and others just retreated. It became too much for them. It's not why they got into science. 
So that was my kind of entryway into this and in that seeing it from the researcher's perspective. Uh, is your dad still around? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, still one of the world's leading experts on uh, wind flow over waving plant canopies, if, if that's ever something you need to know. That about. is magnificent. Well, that's very important in a bushfire prone country like us. It's Absolutely, extraordinarily yeah. important uh, for agriculture and it's extraordinarily important for, you know, how you yeah, heat and cool a suburb essentially, uh, you know, you get enough canopy up yeah. there, it'll really, really change things. So your dad and his colleagues of, of, of very clever people who have all of this hard and robust data, and I say robust in that it would have been challenged and I guess that's the nature of science is like, we have this idea. What do you reckon? Why don't you try to disprove it? You can't disprove it either. Okay, great. Then I reckon the two of us can agree this is probably closer to what is happening until we find something that is even closer. Great. And so he's got this kind of idea of, of where things are traveling as well as this threat of this coordinated dissolving of these foundations of, of the reality that he works in. You were a teenager, did it, or a child even. You weren't even 10. Did he talk to you about that, about the world you might grow up in? Did he speak at all about where things might be going? Was he able to do it without going, and we're all going to burn, son? <laughs> well, I just, I mean, in that way, and I, I really feel like the, the emotional kind of cadence of, of climate change has shifted because at that time it was, um, I think it was ominous, it was scary. Mm. But I don't think that the levels of dread and fear existed in the same way because at that time, you know, we're, we're on, go back to the early 80s when we first started really engaging with this in, in the policy space. And it would have been quite a small task to, to shift tracks and kind of, you know, make the adjustments that we needed to make. Even late 80s, early 90s, still, we're not talking about a significant expense. It wouldn't have been a huge hit, change quality of our lives. It would have been a small turning point. And so, it's only as we've kind of really opened into the 21st century, mm. the levels of what needs to be done to address it, the speed with which those changes need to be made, and the kind of clarity of the obstacle, the political obstacle in our way has really become present. I think most scientists in the 1990s would have assumed or did assume that if we just communicate the facts in a clear, straightforward way, people will get it. And what perhaps you know wasn't clear to those scientists was that people weren't looking at the facts and then making up their minds. As it turns out, we're not rational, we're, we're emotional, we're tribal. And that was, I think, something that actually climate science has kind of brought into our awareness in a way that, that we, wouldn't, we didn't know 30 years ago. We, there was the assumption that people made up their minds based on the evidence. And now, of course, and all of us know that that's not true. Climate science, I think, is one of the real places where that became a kind of uh, a, a global awareness. So my dad in the 90s, I don't think, was was living with the sorts of fears yeah. that that we kind of have had in the last two decades. When it comes to, you know, I think about the, you know, I was, I was telling my, my mate yesterday who came around for a meeting, you know, we were talking about, you know, Nazis on the fucking streets of Melbourne seek heiling. I don't know, you know, you're in Germany right now. That's, it, it'd be improbable for you to describe that to someone, in, you know, down the street from you. But there's Nazis on the streets fucking seek heiling in Melbourne. And I said to my friend, that's an education problem. That's what, that's what that is. That is, you know, that is usually, and all of them, single or, you know, white men who are disenchanted and, you know, it's, it's an ignorance problem. It's not a, that guy's, a, you know, a racist. It just, it's just education. And when I think about the climate challenge that's in front of us, to, 
have any chance of averting, averting catastrophe. It's not a science problem. It's much, very much as a psychology problem. Yeah. And it's, it hasn't been a science problem since the late seventies. I think, you know, we knew everything we needed to know in, in 1979. It's a huge political problem. And now it's a, a, but it's, it's also, it's gone beyond that now. I think we've kind of passed the point of even when you talk about averting catastrophe, obviously that's not going to happen. Yeah. We're, we're now at the point where we, we like catastrophe is locked in. Obviously every day is another opportunity to kind of minimize the damage and, and sort of hasten the journey through the kind of chaos but but we're certainly in the chaos now and there's no getting around it so now i I guess the the challenge has shifted right we're not trying to avert the catastrophe we're trying to find a better build a better world from within the catastrophe you know we we have to we have to kind of remake everything you know we have to we have to remake our our energy system our transport system our uh, our sort of agricultural system and our educational system for exactly the reasons you've talked about. And we have to do that in the face of rapidly escalating shocks and political opposition. So it's not a small job, but it's, it is sort of like it is the job we've been given for our lives, I guess. Yeah, whether we like it or not. When you, you know, <laughs> to, I get, uh, I listen to a lot of Sam Harris and one of the, my favourite episodes of Sam Harris are when he is furiously debating with friends of his, people who I know he likes and is in just vehement disagreement. And listening to <laughs> these two ac- two academics, they're always academics, put the other person's point back towards them, one that they disagree with entirely, you know, this, this sense of I'm trying to really understand your side and your perspective here um, just so you know that I know and then I'm also going to mm. dis- dismantle it. But I'm just making sure that you understand that I understand you, okay? Um, that seems to be missing from this. And the other thing that I kind of watch them do is what is it the other person gets out of it? So in your experience, and you know, you've been at the juncture of storytelling and climate science and trying to have these conversations in ways that aren't covered in spreadsheets and graphs. And, you know, we figured out a while ago that, you know, the, the terror, doom and gloom stuff works for a little bit and then doesn't work. Uh, you kind of have to enroll people in why the change is going to be a good idea, you know. What do you think the people on the on the no change side of things? What what are they getting out of it? Gosh, I mean, that's a that's a really hard question. I mean, I can kind of go to I can go back to a previous project, which was a piece I did called "Kill Climate Deniers." Fun times, kind of, fun times. Yeah, and uh, and of course, the title of that earned the kind of the the right wing backlash you would yeah, expect. It was a, it was a, so that piece basically got, it was like a bunch of people like you know, give it all January 6th on the, on Parliament House, right? <laughs> exactly. That play kind of brought me into contact with a whole lot of effectively climate deniers. And, and previous yeah. to that, like in the early 2010s, I'd always imagined that climate denial was a manufactured phenomenon. I'd sort of pictured it as this astroturf thing that had been conjured into being by fossil fuel lobbyists. And they'd sort of created this idea of a grassroots anti-climate change or anti-climate action movement. That, but really, I was like, who would in their right mind be opposed to trying to make the environment better and trying to make the world kind of, you know, trying to, trying to preserve the, the natural systems we have? But in doing this show, I realized actually, no, there's a, there's a lot of these people and they're very passionate and they're all writing me letters and, and kind of sending me threats and so on. And I did, in, I did delve a bit deeper into what was going on there and found that for a lot of these people at the root of it, um, there's a whole lot of stuff that is around the fear of, of socialism and their, their kind of perspective that climate change is a, a front for, for a, a new age of communism, this idea that climate activists are watermelons, that they're green on the outside and red on the inside. Um, 
But go deeper than that. And the psychological thing that's root of it, I, I thought was actually these people get the kind of consequences of climate change. And in fact, they get the consequences better than perhaps a lot of people who, who probably agree with the science, perhaps even than me, because I, you know, I, I agree with the science. I kind of believe that the, the climate science is correct and the, the models that we're sort of seeing are, are an accurate or relatively accurate description of the futures we're facing. But then I go about my day and I kind of carry on my life as if uh, this, this thing is not kind of, the, the future is not closing its jaws on me. Whereas these people... They can sort of see the consequences. They can see that, okay, this does mean massive and a massive escalation of government intervention. It means a shutting down of freedoms, a reduction in the quality of life. They can see the consequences and they can't accept the consequences. So they refuse to believe the whole thing. Whereas I think, you know, I, I sort of say I believe that, but I, but I don't really kind of follow through yeah. the consequences in the same way. Look, ecofascism is a way of, you know, managing things. <laughs> it's not the only way. And I certainly don't think I'd want to be a part of that. There's, you know, yes. And it is when we're in those heightened states of fear, it is, you know, understandable that people go to the worst possible case scenario and then act off that. All right. Which is mm. how you get people storming the white house, you know, or, you know, parliament, whatever it was, um, is how you get people, you know, standing on the streets, holding a, you know, a God hates fag sign. This is how, you know, mm. because you believe it's absolutely real. Uh, that's not exactly how it has to turn out. You know, there's any cohesive society requires everyone involved to be a part of it. And you're not going to have any hope at all if you're just making a version of our community with just the, the green people involved. Everyone's here. No, Everyone's, we all breathe absolutely. the same air. You know, we all need water. Like it's, we all got to be a part of it. And I guess the other thing from that amount of fear also comes from, we don't know what we don't know yet. We don't know mm. what might show up. Here's what we do know, though. You know, I think we've kind of actually, we perhaps know more than we expect we know. Mm -hmm. um, or, and I say that as Australians. I'm kind of, you know, both of us, both of us being from the east coast of Australia, I think we probably have a, a pretty good idea of what this is going to feel mm -hmm. like. And what, what it's going to feel like is, I'd say we, we had a, a real taste in at the end of 2019 with the bushfires and we had another taste with COVID. And what that felt like was smoke for months on end, uh, it felt like a kind of a real disappointment in our in our government and emergency systems, but at the same time, a real appreciation of the community around us coming together and supporting one another. Like a just, holy shit, the people at the top are not looking after us, but the people around us mm. are really taking care of each other. I think the COVID experience was a great sort of snapshot of, of what the, the kind of larger climate shocks are going to feel like in that it's about, okay, your plans have been cancelled. You can't actually look ahead past a few days or weeks there's this sort of rolling crisis and the government sort of says you know there's been an announcement saying well this thing is is on hold and we'll let you know when it comes back and then periods pass and it just never comes back supply chain shocks you can't get things that you want and there's this sort of escalating paranoia that that bleeds into sort of weird freaky kind of movements and this and this thing that moves at the speed of weeks like the news doesn't change day by day but it changes week by week so periods of time where you're just sort of stuck indoors watching the news refreshing waiting for something to change but it doesn't change and then shocking moments where you're suddenly on the front line of disaster and we all get a go on the front line sooner or later um 
So I think we've actually got a pretty good flavor of what this, what this crisis is going to feel like. And in some ways, I actually think that's great because one thing that is, is horrible, I think, is the dread, this sense of like, oh God, it's coming and we don't know what it's going to feel like, but it's going to, I'm powerless. The anxiety that comes with that, I'm, I'm sure you can speak to this in, in more eloquent ways than I can. But something positive happens, I think, when you actually are on the front line for a minute and sort of see it and you're like, oh, that's, this is what it feels like. Awful. But, but you're no longer kind of living in this anticipatory fear. And I, I say that because I do a lot of work in the UK and there is a real com- rich conversation in the UK about climate change. But it, to my mind, is very academic and, and very fearful. They, they're so mindful. Climate change is coming, it's coming, it's coming. You go talk to an Australian and they're like, oh yeah, bushfires. I, can't, I know what that's like. I'm not, it's, not, it's not news. Floods, yeah. Heat waves, absolutely. That's not academic to us. Mm. And so actually I think that lived experience, once you get a taste of that, kind of takes away some of that anxiety, probably replaces it with a different anxiety. But I'm sure you've got, I'm sure you're, you've got your own sort of experience of this. Well, I guess, you know, you, we were speaking about Black Summer, what was kind of interesting because I only recently put out my book where I talked a lot about, you know, what had happened and um, I, did a, I did a tour, I did some live shows and stuff like that and I was getting a lot of texts, a lot of messages going, hey, you okay? And I was like, Oh yeah, I felt terrible about this five years ago. I'm fine. I've. It's not like I was waiting for this, but this is like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like it was no, <laughs> it wasn't a, a catastrophic, terrifying. You know, the the koalas are on fire. I says, of course they're on fire. Uh, they're actually mm. on fire now. Like five years ago, I was seeing that in you know glitching Mr. Robot style in and out of my vision. It was really scary. Mm. And in a way, it was kind of peaceful. <laughs> it's terrifying to say to you. It was kind of kind of peaceful there's this weird mix of you know as we you know read stories about this you know this on the way the hottest year ever and you know you know more interesting data comes out about the west antarctic ice sheet and other fun things like that there's this real weird sense of you know i can be in fear or i can lean forward and be with it um Mm -hmm. and that for me has been the freedom from from that it's not that it's not terrifying as shit like even right now i can feel my heart rate elevating i can feel a weird thing in the pit of my stomach but then i also think about david i think about um the concept of memento mori the idea that is wayne coin from the flaming mm. lips would say everyone you know someday will die and this you know i don't know when that chunk of the thwaites glacier is going to fall off nobody does but when it does well nothing's ever the same again what am, am I going to go when that happens? Oh, geez, I'm really glad I waited to do this thing or am I just going to fucking do this thing? You know, this, <laughs> exactly. there's, yeah, we, we kind of, we don't live in regret as much as we think we will, do we? No, it's still not, it's not fun. Like it's still really scary, <laughs> but I, I don't know, David, if we differ on this, but I, I also, maybe it's cause I read too much, um, uh, Rutger Bregman and, Pinker and um, Hans Rosling, but I kind of, I come down on the line of like, overall, when you look at the really, really big numbers, humans have always tried to do the best thing for the most amount of people. When you look at the really- Yeah, we're a kind, we're a kind yeah. animal, I think, at, at root, despite a lot of people trying to tell us otherwise because yeah. they want to sell us something. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. And this is the thing I wanted to dig into. That's the interesting part, isn't it? But to your earlier point too, I just will say you're, you're absolutely right. You know, five years ago, how it would have felt to go through the fires different. We gather strength as we go along. I think we probably underestimate how much 
grief we've already metabolized since the early 2000s. I think, you know, we probably, we've already downgraded our expectations of the future year by year. I mean, for me, probably ever since the the kind of Howard era, the Bush, like the, all of that stuff has just been one one year after another of being like, oh, okay, the future will be less good than I'd hoped. And my dreams are probably, and and uh, I've let go of one expectation and one hope and, and kind of accepted more and more kind of pain and grief and damage as part of my future. And at this point, you know, this, all of us have already absorbed all of this like pain and fear and grief and dread, all of it's in us. At the same time, we still go out and hang out with our friends and we still laugh and we still, you know, we still, the moon is still beautiful at night. Like these shocks are going to keep coming. But I think we also, the the people that we're going to be in 20 years time, we haven't even, we can't even imagine what kind of people will become as a result of going through this. But that's something we can probably be proud of at the other side of. I think as a, as a species, as a community, as individuals, we're going to come out the other side of our lives, having been through something that we will shape us. And, uh, you know, it's not something that we would ever choose to go through or should inflict on anyone. And of course, the people who are going to suffer the most are the people least able to kind of have this sort of rosy outlook that I'm describing. Or who had the least to do with it, unfortunately. Absolutely. But at the same time, it's not like as a as individuals, we spend our days and, and nights sort of just going around and around and kind of complaining about what didn't go right 25 years ago. We actually live yeah. more in the moment. Um, shifting baseline syndrome is a <laughs> often kind of flagged as a bad thing, but I think it's also a good psychological defense as it, well. It is because it also, you know, those plans that you had that you have to let go of, well, those were plans based on the rules that existed and what success looked mm. like at the time. and like 10 years ago, I wanted batteries under my solar panels. Now mm. I want a kinetic flywheel. I had no idea that I could get a kinetic <laughs> flywheel 10 years ago. So now I can. All right. Yeah. So opportunity and possibility arises in the face of challenge every time. And at every point in our history, when humanity has been faced with something and, you know, even though it's really fucking scary and we're real close to it, that we haven't hit go on another atomic weapon since, you know, August 1945 is fucking incredible because I think every single person who's in charge of every one of those things, one person pushes that button and that's the last button that ever gets pushed. Mm. And somewhere way deep inside us, we're not doing that. We, we, that's the other thing about growing up in the eighties. Like we all live every day, just kind of forgetting that nuclear annihilation is literally 20 minutes away. You know, that we, that it's, and it's less than an hour's warning. You talk about a weekly news cycle, mm-hmm. it's less than an hour warning of like, oh, by the way, there's fucking, you know, multi headed ICBMs that have been pointed at us for the last 40 years that have just hit go. And there's fuck all you can do about it, you know? I mean, the, it was interesting to sort of the, the conversations around uh, nuclear disarmament and nuclear and non proliferation treaty are very active and they're very kind of rich and, and happening at this moment. So, you know, I was in, in the UK at a Chatham House conference last year. Do they do Chatham House rules at Chatham House conferences? <laughs> Not at this one, no. This uh, this was just, uh, thankfully, so I, if, if I could remember the names of any of the pundits, I could give That's you pretty funny. Names. Yeah, yeah, cool. But they were talking about Russia's escalation of, of nuclear threat. And it was a reminder that actually these were these were people who've dedicated their lives to the, the, pol- the political effort to try and um, reduce the nuclear armaments. Um, and they're... 
you know, <laughs> they're very serious, very nervy people. Mm. But um, yeah, you kind of, <laughs> it was good to remember that this threat exists. Oh, yeah. And that there are people who are spending their every waking minute trying to minimize it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it is terrifying and they're every second of the day yet we've gotten so used to it you talk about the shifting baseline effect we've gotten so used to it it's just oh yeah that's the thing you know yeah. and there's this many missing nukes since 1962 and uh you know <laughs> but also that thing too that you know we, we're making plans for a world that that you know our old plans kind of evaporate it's interesting to reflect isn't it that that we were educated for a world that no longer exists yeah. and uh and in fact that world had already gone well by the truly. time we were born. You know, we were educated and, and and grew up in the idea that we lived in this stable world with four seasons. And, of course, the the world was already transforming. We already – the crisis began long before any of us were born, and it will not finish till long after we're dead. We live our whole lives inside the crisis. The image of the world that we had is is already – you know, it's, it's already gone. And this is the moment. I think there's what is lovely about this moment and, and the pleasure about working in theatre as well is that we're just sort of able to stand up now and look around and be like, well, what is this world that we're in? What is the this new planet that we've landed on? What kind of society do we need to build and how are we going to get through it collectively? Yeah. And that's something that is a, a huge kind of imaginative task yeah. and a conversational task. I, I used to make the joke that Elon Musk wants to live the rest of his life on a different planet to the one he was born on, but the news to you, Elon, is that you will live the rest of your life to a different planet than the one you were born on. Like, that, that's just it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, with the tools and skills that we have to live on the planet that we were born on, of course they're not going to be the right tools and skills that we need to continue. Mm. And yet at every point in human history when we're faced by, oh, shit, what are we going to do here? Uh, I know, pasteurization. Great. And then we will find a way. Oh, the Haber-Bosch process. Let's go. You know, we, we, mm. we figure out a way. I would, I would like to think that that keeps going and, but that is just on the technological side of things. The social stuff is a part that really, that's the part that really scares me. I'm not afraid of fire or flood or water levels rising. I'm not afraid of that. I'm afraid as to what hungry people do. And that's the thing that really fucking scares me, man. I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. And, so. and that's the trick. I think that is the great thing that we are, I don't, I don't know, you, you know, we talk about people pushing into nuclear disarmament. We talk about people making fucking flywheels, people trying to work on clean hydrogen, people trying to do all kinds of things. In your experience and in, in your work, who are the people doing the greatest work on figuring out ways that societies can be and communicate and deal with the problems of misinformation or deal with the problems of inequity? The people that come to mind, I had a, a really lovely chat the other week with, with Michael Sean Fletcher, who's a Warajiri man and uh, who studies, he's um, an environmental geographer and paleogeographer, mm -hmm. and he studies the history of, of burning in Australia. And, uh, you know, Michael Sean, um, but also people like Victor Stephenson, uh, who's an Appalachian man, have been talking about the ways in which we can kind of relate to fire in Australia uh, and the First Nations kind of relationship with fire. So Victor Stephenson wrote an amazing book called Fire Country a couple of years ago, and, and he's um, one of the people that was behind the Fire Sticks movement, which is a, a kind of cultural burning initiative. The Indigenous relationship with fire in Australia is extraordinary, and it is this sort of very sophisticated understanding of how you can kind of use fire and get fire on your side yeah. and, and live on the land in a very kind of... Um, thoughtful way yeah it shaped the land it was it was farming but it was in a way of farming that people couldn't see it, it shaped the land it yeah. changed it changed the entire ecology of areas 
yeah, an incredibly sophisticated understanding of the systems that we're embedded in. I think one thing that's that's useful at this moment is that as we kind of come up against these shocks, we are starting to turn back to to knowledge holders who kind of have uh, who have held on to knowledge that perhaps is is the the heritage of all of humanity but only certain groups have actually maintained it in the in, in more recent centuries and and first nations australians is certainly one so i had a great chat with um with cassie lynch who's a noongar scholar on the west coast and her, she studies sea level rise at the end of the uh the ice age that's her sort of expertise so she looks at the sort of oral histories and stories that the noongar people have around what happened when the seas rose 60 meters or more at the end of the last ice age, the land that was lost, about 25% of Australia went underwater, millions of square kilometers, and a huge number of people had to leave their land and seek refuge in other other country, and the, the countries of other people. And a hugely disruptive time for, for the whole world, um, and Australia is no exception. But in, First Nations Australians navigated that, and they have actually held on to those stories so there are oral histories of uh, of sea level rise that go back to that uh, to that period ten thousand years ago. When I heard that, I thought that that was ridiculous. Like I thought, okay, there's no way that a, an oral story can pass on. Sure, like they've got flood myths, but they're not the flood that we're talking about. They're not that kind of sea level rise. Even though in Australia, um, those flood myths, those narratives about sea level rise, do map quite closely to the areas which were significantly flooded at the end of the Ice Age. But still, I thought it's too much of a stretch. But around 2016, a group of scholars um, began kind of doing these quite sophisticated mapping exercises. They took topographical maps of undersea regions um, that had flooded during the last end of the last Ice Age um, off the coast of New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria, WA, and they mapped those topographical uh, images to the legends and the, the the oral histories, and they found that they matched completely. There you go. So these people are telling stories about features that have gone underwater eight thousand years ago, and it turns out that they are they are actually accurate eyewitness accounts of these uh, of these uh, features going underwater. So these First Nations knowledge holders can look out at a an island that went underwater eight thousand years ago and tell you its original name, which is extraordinary. But what's that? That's not because they are sort of you know magical superhuman people. That's because they've got a, a very sophisticated knowledge transmission system, which has allowed them to hold on to these stories and tell them in the, the right way at the right time, um, using the exact same language. They're not remixed. They're not kind of uh, re-narrated in the way that you know um, an or a Roman or a Greek myth might be. Or like, I don't know, say, for example, one that came out of the Middle East that then got translated into English and then again in the 70s and handed to me in a primary school in Brisbane. None of those myths. <laughs> no, well, I mean, they are, they're, they're oral and spoken, yeah. but they're not kind of, you know, they're not just sort of stories in the way that, that I think of a story. No. But they are, they are an actual useful existing account of how to live through a massive climate shock. Yeah, right. And from a culture that has actually maintained its continuity through uh, the last big significant climate shock. What we can kind of take from that, first of all, is that it's possible. It can be done. We have been here before and we got through it. And secondly, that there are people in this world today who, if we listen to them, have some knowledge that we can mm. we can draw on. They're not going to tell, you know, you're not going to be talking to First Nations Australians to be like, okay, so how do we build the correct kinetic flywheel for our solar panel? <laughs> that you know, That's not what those First Nations 
traditional stories do. But what they do provide is a, an actual uh, a roadmap to what kinds of social organizations mm. can navigate these sorts of shocks. So I'm a storyteller. That's the, and so that I find incredibly valuable and it's, it's here. We have it in Australia. It's not something that exists in many parts of the world, but it's here. So, you know, as Australians, I think we're in an incredibly fortunate position to, to be, to have people around us who we can turn to and listen to. That's extraordinary, extraordinary hearing you say that because it's, you know, it's one thing that people talk about the oldest continuous culture in the world is that, yeah, but there's a reason. There's a reason it has been <laughs> yeah. continuous and it has survived colonialism and destruction and, you know, annihilation. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason that it's, it's, there's no one, no one else made it that far. No one. I mean, they've been here, yeah. you know, 60,000 years or more. But even if you, in the most sort of narrow frame, if you think, okay, well, indigenous culture probably took some period of time to take the shape that it has mm. uh, more recently, we're still talking thousands of years, maybe even tens of thousands of years, they have managed to live in a, a very close and, and very sophisticated relationship, yeah. a sustainable relationship with this country. Anglo society has arrived in 250 years and we've trashed the place. So I think it's quite realistic to imagine that, you know, in another 250 years, we probably won't have an Australia in the way that we have today. We won't have that continuing, like, you know, Anglo, Anglo colonial government. But I can imagine that First Nations Australians will have kept their culture and carried it through yeah. for hundreds or thousands of years to come. It's, it's really interesting. Like only maybe not even 100 years ago, you you could expect to live in the same place that you were born in. And that was mm. like maybe 100 years ago that just started to change. Maybe a little over 100 years ago it just started to change. That Where you were born is where you would stay and the job that you got would be the job that your dad got. And unfortunately not your mum because that's the way it was. And that was the expectation from the start, you know, and this is kind of drilled into us as an expectation of like, oh, no, 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 it's going to be better when I'm older because it has been better when I'm older every time but better via these metrics that we have now managed to kind of measure ourselves by the amount of shit I've got, yeah, how big my super is, where I live, you know, what my kids do for a job. That can and will change and we will still, it's not like we'll feel any less happy, you know, What's that line? A, a man, no, a man, I mean, a man with bread has heaps of problems. A man with no bread has one. It's not that we'll feel any less vision of any version of happiness that isn't still great. We we won't feel less fulfilled. No, I'm, certainly, no matter what we do, we're going to do the the classic human thing that every generation since since before we even were humans has done, which is to be like, oh, it was better when we were young. Young people respected their elders when we were young, yeah. and the music was better, and and you know that is. That, that will remain true from now until the end of time. But I think you're right. A hundred years ago, you could expect to live in the same place as you were born and where you, where you were going to die. 5,000 years ago, not so much the case. I think yeah. we are kind of, we, we did grow up in an unusually static period. You know, nation states, yeah. of course, they didn't exist in the way we understand them no. um, a couple of centuries ago. And we kind of are now putting that concept of nation states under incredible strain mm. with this idea of, locking in people into the territory in which they were born at the same period as we're making a huge swathe of the earth's uh, tropics uninhabitable for human life. So we are going to see massive movements. We are going to become the nomad species, which we've traditionally been. And that actually, I think, you know, there's a, there's a, a good side to that as well. Gaia Vince has written a great book called Nomad Century, where she kind of delves into the, the history of humans as animals 
using nomadism as a tool, using migration as a survival technique. We can live in all of these different kinds of ecologies and ecosystems. Traditionally, when uh, an area has been damaged or life has become impossible in a place, we move. That's what we do. And that is going to be the survival tool of the 21st century. Tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people, maybe billions of people are going to have to move. And that actually doesn't have to be a tragedy. We've only framed that as a tragedy, but that could be an opportunity for a whole species-wide renewal you know, under incredible pressure and intention, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't have to be a tragedy. I would hope that it doesn't have to be a tragedy. The migration has changed us, uh, who we are and, and changed the very nature. Of, it's a fantastic book, The Molecule of More, um, to, mm. I can't remember the names. Have you read it? It's, it's, it's about dopamine. No. Uh, it's about dopamine. And there's a particular dopamine receptor that they measured and they started in Central Africa and they measured along the migration line. So up, which way did it go? Like up uh, through Europe, uh, you know, across and then, you know, the Bering Strait or whatever was there between, you know, when there was a land bridge over to North America mm-hmm. uh, and then down North America all the way. To, and they found that the the most amount of dopamine, this particular thing, occurred in the native uh, indigenous tribes of the the bottommost tip of South America because dopamine mm-hmm. is a thing is like, but what else is there? What else is new? Let's go find something new. So over time, we kind of self-sorted ourselves as to, no, no, I'm cool. Off you go, Gerald. We're cool right here. And Gerald's like, no, 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 there's something over that hill. And they just kept going <laughs> until the people that only, only people who want to keep going were the ones that couldn't not keep going. And we, we know the, the exact same thing is happening now with cane toads in the north. <laughs> like if you, if you sample, if you took a cane toad from, say, Queensland, where they've been for, you know, maybe 50 years now almost, and you take a cane toad from where they've just, you know, a few years ago crossed over the NT into the into WA heading west. My God, the ones on the front edge. Uh, you take one from the from Queensland and one from from WA. The one in Queensland will sit happily in its little cage that you put it. It'll just kind of ribbit. And the one in the the one from WA from that leading edge, you put it in a box and it'll just bounce and bump its head <laughs> and kind of hammer its head. It wants to get going. There are, wow. yeah, we've got that frontline kind of cane toad calling. We have a lot in common with cane toads. Where that, yeah, well, I'm a Queenslander, so yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> I don't know if this is just me rationalising it so I can sleep at night and tell my son it's going to be fine when I hug him, uh, tell my kids they're going to be all right. But a part of me thinks that, look, there's two options. There's there's die in like some sort of horrible children of men style, grey, grim, uh, you know, kind of zero population growth, no infant, like high infant mortality, random joint smoking Michael Caine terror world, mm. or um, utopia. Because the options are pretty much that. Like we either figure it out and really figure it out or that's it. And... I'm at peace with that, David. I'm okay with that. You know, I'm okay that that's that's how it's going to have to end up. Unfortunately, <laughs> I think you know. Actually, what I what I kind of take from that is is we're all on our own kind of journey with this stuff, and we're all processing in our own time and our own way. And where you've come to, it really feels like it, it does feel like you've kind of metabolized all this stuff over decades, and you've kind of pieced it together. And, and where you are now is the result of a, a huge amount of time spent thinking and feeling and, and kind of uh, talking. I also don't think that that's where you'll end up staying. I think, you know, <laughs> wherever we come to, I, my experience has been in this, in this whole thing in the decades, I've 
that I've been grappling with it is that every so often I'm finally, I, I kind of have an epiphany. I'm like, that's it. That's what I need to, I, I'm going to feel this way about it. And then give me six months and something else will happen. Yeah. And uh, I can, there's no fixed place because nah. it is just like, yeah, we're, we're trying to, we're, we're grappling with this impossibly complex thing that's bigger than our whole world. And, yeah. uh, and it never changed. It never stops changing in order way. In a large enough time scale, and I think this is also how I, I try to manage it. In a in a large enough time scale and a large enough lens, uh, this particular cluster of atoms that make up my body is so fucking insignificant and really doesn't matter at all. And that's okay, you know. It's 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 also okay. And yeah, it's another way that I can I can bear it. I think my my tactic for bearing it is a is is. Uh, Similar but not exactly the same, which is I just, at the end of the day, I find myself just so curious to yeah. find out how it's going to turn out. Yeah. Like it's not, you know, I'm scared and I'm angry and I'm, yeah. I'm full of dread and grief, all of that, but I'm also just so fascinated by it. Like we're alive in this incredible moment in mm. the planet's history yeah. where, you know, up until the, now, no, nothing like this has ever happened on the whole planet Earth in its 4 billion years. And not only are we around for it, we're also aware of it. We're able to see it unfolding around us we yeah. you know we we're responsible for it in this incredible horrific way but we can do something about it too yeah. and that is just an amazing gift to be here together to be alive to be able to talk about it to be able to share it and you know what a lovely group of other human beings to be around to share this moment in the earth's history with <laughs> so i'm just so fascinated by where we're going to end up in the next few decades and i i want to stick around to sort of see even if it does end up with us all being like Clive Owen running around with, with bare feet in the kind of English countryside. It's a terrifying so film, but amazing, but terrifying. <laughs> uh, and not far from, you know, it was based on something that was actually, it was actually quite real. Uh, and it's really interesting, you know, it's, it's really, really kind of interesting. And, and I do also share that. I share that curiosity. If I can keep an essence of curiosity about it, it's actually all right. Um, but it is yeah. in the, if I think too much about the, the insidious nature of the disinformation and the insidious nature of the deliberate uh, distortion of reality, it gets very hard uh, to understand that someone is trying to milk the last cent out of it before they have to stop. Um, but that's also what it is to be a version of a human. That is also yeah, it's, a person who thinks they're doing the best thing ever. It's, it's contemptible, isn't it? It's, it's like you really sort of, feel, and this is not something that's, that's unusual in human experience either, but you really sort of feel like, God, we're living in the, we're living in the last days of, of slavery when there's still a, a body of people who've made a lot of money out of slavery, yeah. just still insisting it's a fine thing. What's wrong with it? You know, we yep. can't upset the economic basis of our society. And uh, you just know the, the horror and disgust that future generations will have for the, the system that we're in. And it's sort of, it's so frustrating to sort of be like, we can see it. We can all see it. Why do we have to wait around for yeah. generations to get rid of this thing? We can just do it now. But I think it's it's also lovely that in the last few years, again, I feel like for me it really shifted in the late 2010s, but people want to talk about this. And yeah. what you're describing that in the conversation you and I are having a decade ago, I think would have been very unusual. And Ooh, now- We've been fucking crackpots, mate. Yeah. Yeah. But now, you know, it's actually, it's, there's an people want to talk about this space. People have their own- Mm. relationship with this stuff and their own experiences and their own ideas mm. and so you know doing a show about climate change as i say a decade ago it was death you know kind of yeah. the only people that came were these activists who came to be told that the world is fucked and it's their fault and there's this sort of 
Protestant self-flagellation vibe about the, the crowd, which I never, which I never really knew what to do with. Yeah. But now it's it's younger people, it's people from all walks of life, and they're they're not blank slates. They're not coming to be told what's the science of climate change. We all get the basics. We all know enough. Yeah. And everyone now has their own thing that they're bringing to the table. So the conversations afterwards in the bar are really suddenly yeah. crackling with energy. Storytelling is the only way that humans f- form. Uh, as Nish mentioned, a nation state. A nation state is just a story that a bunch of people mm-hmm. agree with, you know. A thing to do about a challenge like gun control in Australia is a story. And it was a story that had a terrible, terrible catalyst, had a really powerful storyteller, as much as I disagree with so much of what that person did. It's fucking amazing. I lived in America for 10 years, man. Like that we don't have guns in Australia on the streets like that is unbelievable and that was a story that got told and it was a motive and it was a moment that got captured and it the political will was just driven by that story that transcended any kind of politics and it got through 21 weeks i think from the moment the martin bryant left his house to the moment they did it it's fucking unbelievable that that happened um I certainly don't want the Port Arthur of climate to happen. Some would argue that Black Summer was, but maybe that's what it's going to need. You know, I thought that too, and I actually Black Summer proved that it uh, that it won't that it won't work like that. Yeah. You know, we were in Black Summer, we were in the fires themselves, and if you were on Twitter at that time, you would have seen people sort of saying uh, it's actually the Greenies' fault for <laughs> for opposing burning or what like burn backs or whatever kind of invented story some people were saying it's actually climate activists who are setting these fires deliberately to kind of in the aftermath obviously you know with the uh, supposedly covid kind of knocked it off the agenda and and i think very quickly it moved out of the frame i actually don't think the disasters are going to change people's minds i used to think that i don't think that anymore i think the the kind of identity that we kind of construct around the our opinions is actually far stronger than any sort of outlying kind of uh, climate shock. So no, I think I think there's there's no sort of version of that. Is it accelerationist? The idea that you want the kind of bad things to kind of pile up quicker so that the enemy defeats itself and you can kind of move to a better world. Unfortunately, I don't think that uh, that <laughs> that 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 paradigm is uh, is not true. Um, that was my take from from that uh, 2019 well, that, 2020 experience. That that is really interesting. And I'm, fasc- I'm fascinated by that, that as a community, we will just be okay with more and more change and more and more, like at some point, the amount of change and whether it be the amount of water we're allocated to each house or the amount of food that we're allowed to buy at a, or where, you know, sorry, your house is within, you know, 200 metres of the coastline. I know it's your nest egg, but it's gone now. We don't have the money to pay for it tough cities like i don't know how we'll withstand those things but they're all already happening yeah yeah they're all you know they're all everything you've just described is happening now it's happening you know sometimes it's some of it's happening in australia uh, people in brisbane and queensland you know lost their houses northern rivers lost their houses and and we're exactly that told okay look you can't get insurance you have to leave every so often you'll read one of these long form pieces that does a roundup of climate migrants within rich countries of course water restrictions, food restrictions. We've, we've experienced all of them. We will continue to experience all of them. I don't think there is a certain benchmark point where we're like, okay, so if we have 
this point level of restrictions, then we suddenly get a global movement. I don't think there is that that magic line. Other factors enter into the picture. But no, I think the that was my that was my idea for so long. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well the worst that could happen is we have to wait until the shocks get so bad mm. that suddenly that activates people. And there is no there is no line where that happens. What do you think about the idea that it was economic greed that got us into this mess and economic greed might get us out. I mean, it's certainly interesting seeing the rise and fall of the Green New Deal and that uh, that sort of as a as a journey in the last sort of decade. We're talking really about been. the American policy that just... Yeah, yeah, so this, you know, this this kind of... Uh, there was a, a move... I kind of date it, you know, we can kind of put a, put a line in the sand. Say it came, started 2014. There was a big climate march in New York. Naomi Klein published a book called This Changes Everything. Um, And those two things were both sort of very much in the same space, which argued that climate change is a kind of uh, an issue of economic greed, an issue of capitalism. We can't tackle climate change without tackling uh, economic greed, which, you know, at a deep level really speaks to me as a a sort of concept. And that was, I think, one of the driving factors, the driving sort of ideologies behind climate activism of the last decade. What we saw... In the last few years, particularly with this sort of shift, um, government sort of suddenly taking on uh, net zero kind of uh, pledges, business to, to whatever degree of sincerity, businesses adopting net zero practices. Um, there actually has been a version where we can say, "Oh, actually, no, we can we can address climate change without addressing inequality. Mm-hmm. We can. There is a future in which you, the companies can sort of navigate the transition. Yeah. We can get through climate change." and just still continue to have a massive, huge inequality and, and massive amounts of poverty. Everyone's going to high-five you at the AGM, Calvin. It's going to be fine. It's a very, I don't know, it's a very disheartening thing. Yeah. And, and we sort of saw that, you know, the Green New Deal was one of the kind of labels that was, that was thrown around, that was used a lot. And if you, if you kind of did a Google engram and saw the kind of rise and, and fall in the use of the Green New Deal, that moment really has passed. And I think we're now in this new phase of a much more splintered activism where we're not seeing that kind of, uh, uh, where there is, you know, there is a narrative where, okay, economic greed can get us out of this. It's a damn shame if that turns out to be the truth. But, uh, yeah, I think, um, I think it's certainly feasible. Yeah. It'll suck. Uh, it'll absolutely suck. But if Exxon are just waiting for that final moment to go, Oh, and we've had this in the lab since 1984. Boom, fusion. And, you know, hmm. there you go. Like like what I read the other day, that lithium is now almost, if not parity, past parity of, of um, iron ore or coal out of WA. It's like the most valuable mineral being being mined. You know, there's, there's billions of dollars to be made or trillions of dollars to be made in, in saving the world. The idea that um, the, the profit to be made out of transitioning off of a fossil fuel once the you know price per kilowatt hour of something like solar gets low enough, once the price of storage gets low enough, that it would make it makes no sense to keep burning a fossil fuel. So this is interesting. I, I did a lot of work with a, with a group called Climate Safe Lending, which is a sort of sustainable finance NGO based in the UK and the US, and they work trying to transition the financial sector to a a more sustainable model. Um, so working a lot with banks and regulators and uh, and kind of other sort of figures within the financial system. And um, one of those speakers, James Vaccaro, is a really fascinating writer on this topic. And he's spoken about how he was a cop in Glasgow and uh, was really struck by the presence of the fossil fuel industry at that Mm. meeting. Um, 
and there is this this there is this kind of conversation happening at the moment being like well these these fossil fuel companies have um have had a life kind of taking this stuff out of the ground and now that's no longer useful maybe there's a second act in their careers where they can spend their time putting it back in the ground they have the expertise to become carbon drawdown specialists um james Picaro was like of course these companies are selling themselves as that but he's like we don't first of all it, it, it's just as easy for us to make new companies to do that job. We don't, we don't yeah. need their s- specific, you know, the, the expertise that they have is not that specialized that we yeah. can't, we can't replace it. But secondly, he's like the, the challenge here for us is that there's this perverse incentive whereby these companies are all foreseeing that they will be called on to do carbon drawdown. And the value of carbon drawdown is going to depend on the price per ton of carbon dioxide. No. And the price per ton I want you to is stop, going to but be I know where you're going. Yep. Yeah, keep going. The, the more stuff they pump out, <laughs> the more valuable it will be to pump it back in. And, of course, it counts as GDP both ways. So James Vicaro is like, actually, these companies are realistically not a part of any solution. God, the other point which, fucking um, uh, damn which Holly Jean Buck has written about really beautifully is actually that, you know, this idea that there's a, a, a bunch of money to be made in kind of uh, saving the world. It sort of depends a bit on where that money's coming from. At the moment, that money would all kind of have to come from cleanup uh, budgets. Yep. It would be government funding. So what we're talking about is government contracts, which really depends on a taxpayer willingness mm. to pay to, to do cleanup. It's not like you can kind of sell people things that are going to just suddenly make a bunch of money. Um, it, it, there is a there is a dependency on our willingness to actually spend to clean our environment, which of course we should do. But it's not a it's not a money making enterprise in the same way that you know developing a new form of online advertising is. Yeah. So you can sort of see where the money is going in terms of of course online tech AI yeah. that space versus these carbon drawdown solutions. There there's a lot of talk about you know green billionaires out there in the future, and I think it's I think it's plausible. But I also think that that industry doesn't have the same fundamental foundational structure and at the, this point i don't know what kind of pays for that for that uh, kind of green economy just taking a moment away from david finnegan to say that you can get tickets for this show scenes from a climate era in the show notes you'll find a two-for-one deal to the previews and there's an offer code in there as well uh, and tickets to ntn and nnn we're heading to newcastle we're going to be there it's going to be great it's an early show 5 30 p.m and you know what Mid-flight brawl on at 3 p.m. I'll get there. I'm getting there early in the morning. I'm getting there with I'm going with Heggy and Cody. Fucking so help me, those motherfuckers. They drink Guinness and eat Chinese food at three in the morning. So I'll be smelling of the farts of those men's colons uh, by the time I arrive. And oh, they, they're working comedy. They finish late at night. They go to late night restaurants. So I don't. I go to bed. But I'm going uh, up there with those two guys, and so I'll be there early, and then setting everything up, and then yeah, mid-flight brawl. I thoroughly recommend you check it out. I love that show. I love those guys. I love how they look at the world. I find that show very funny. We're on 5.30, so it's an early show. We're on 5.30. And then Heggy is doing his show Grot. He's actually filming his special that night. So if you want to immortalize the back of your head, as Heggy would say, but he's bringing all the lights and cameras and everything. So, you know, you want to get on a TV special? Go see Heggy's show. That's where he's shooting it. He's shooting his TV special on Newcastle. Fuck yeah. It's going to be great. I'll be back in a minute with more from David Finnegan. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're having a conversation that's probably... Unfortunately, you know, un, you know, it's, it's all, all my fault because you know you're on my show. Uh, this conversation could be a little too much for some people. We've used way too many words already. We've spoken for an hour, uh, and this, unfortunately, is the kind of stuff as you mentioned. You know, media trainers came to show your dad, the climate scientist, how to speak in sound bites. Like, how the fuck can you even begin to put this stuff into just as enough words that can match the? You know, I fuck. I work all day. I've got three kids. One of them's sick. I'm under the pump to try and get the family to the Gold Coast for the holidays. Um, fucking my husband's doing this, and my fucking sister's doing that. And what? What do you fucking want? Like, that's the person that needs to be spoken to, and it's fucking hard to do. Mm. I mean, I'm, I, that, that, that's a pregnant pause for me because I agree. I've got, <laughs> and I absolutely. Um, I not only have no solutions, but I also have kind of really abrogated any sense of responsibility to to kind of try and make those connections. And the reason is, the reason very concretely is that as, as a sort of artist working in climate space, that 100% of the time people ask you, okay, so this this show you've written about climate, this, this play you've written about a kind of environmental uh, systems, how is that going to change people's minds? Or how is that going to connect to the people who need to be connected to? Or how is that going to nudge the dial, reach across to the people in the other echo chamber, et cetera? The only lens through which we read this stuff is an activist lens, a, mm. a political social change lens. And um, I for years thought that because that's how people talked about this stuff, I was like, oh, God, that's what I need to do. And I, I tried to work on messaging and I tried to work on work on framing it in the right way getting it in the sound bites to connect to that hypothetical person you're talking about who's got yeah. a bunch of stuff on. And I made just a lot of really shitty plays as a result. I actually had to learn to let go of that and, and completely drop this whole idea that what I do is going to make a difference. We all have an obligation politically and socially to try and make the world a better place. And I put that energy into, you know, supporting the kinds of NGOs and organizations that I value and, you know, voting and writing letters to politicians, all that stuff. There's a political agency we have to have. The art that I do has no political value. And that's actually great because now my job is make a show that is a, a nice night out at the theatre, something I would want to come and see. Yeah. And what I want to go see is something with music and dancing and a good story and some cool ideas and some interesting things about the world that, that I learn. But I don't want to change anyone's mind. So this show, this show that, that is happening at Belvoir has no call to action. Yeah. It's not going to teach anyone how to reduce their impact. It's not going to inspire people to go out to protest. It's not going to change anyone's minds about anything. And it, it is not going to give anyone hope. I repeat, and I repeat <laughs> that. It's not going to give anyone hope. Yeah. Um, and people may find hope in the work. 
Um, but if they do, it's not because I put it there. It's because they found it themselves. So yeah. I'm not writing a play to make people hopeful if that were even possible. So the value of letting that go as a frame and sort of saying, you know what, we can't expect this idea that, that there's a massive people out there who need to be prodded into action. Now, fuck it. We're all in this thing together. It's yeah. not my job. It's not your job to tell people or nudge people or move them. There are activist movements that have that sort of framing and, and I, you know, hundred percent get behind it and would put my time to volunteering for them. But as artists, as speakers, as storytellers, our job, I think the way I see it is that there's a world of things that I'm fascinated by and curious about. And I want to share some of the things I'm fascinated and curious about. And if people connect with my fascination, my curiosity and, and engage with those things, that's the job. There's no other job that is more important than that. Uh, and honestly, like trying to create a show that's like 75 minutes that's worth getting out of the house for on a, on a Wednesday night, that's already a big ask. So, you know, if you can do that, fuck trying to change the world in a piece of theatre. And, and speaking for myself, I don't go to the theatre to sort of have my mind changed or to sort of, you know, learn how to become a better human. When you say mind changed, I think you may be you may be using it in the terms of my opinion changed. Yet, if you have ignited within some somebody who watches, oh, there's a little bit more here to explore, and then because of that seed that has been planted, they pop off and now look at things in a slightly different light. And whether it be a day, a week, a month, a year later, now see things completely differently. That's a mind being changed. Mm. But this, this is interesting again. I know I'm getting into really kind of inside baseball in terms of like the, the art and creative process stuff that comes in theatre. But Dude, like, I'm all about it, mate. <laughs> okay, great. Well, actually, I think that's like that's out of your hands. That, that yes. degree of what's happening in the mind of the audience is out of your hands. The job that you have as a writer is very, it's very basic craft job. Okay, so you've got this, this bit of story. This interesting thing is happening in the world. And then you kind of actually put that into a form that a group of actors and a director can create into a, a stage image that an audience can engage with. And then there's problems. As soon as you do that, there's a million problems. Okay, well, this doesn't yeah. connect to this. How do we have the emotional arc trace from here to here? And then you kind of get into the world of that. You make that as, as good as you can, what's happening on the stage, what's happening in between the characters and the, the ideas and, uh, and the, the kind of design elements, music, set, all of the, the lighting, all those elements, you kind of get really into the weeds with that and you try and maintain what keeps you excited about it and you keep feeding that back to, audience, to test audiences as you go and say what's working, what's not. In all of that, what you're describing, that sort of sense of excitement and, and a kind of uh, the, the mind coming alive, that's, that's like... It's like froth in the daydream. You know, you can't you can't work from that basis. And yeah. you hope in the back of your mind that it that it will have something of that effect. But if you concentrate on that, I think you kind of kind of easily end up attaching to it in a really wrong way. And I say that because I did. I say that because for years I made the kind of shows where I, I worked backwards from this. Okay, so how can I inspire an audience? And like you know, imagine going into a whiteboard and being like, what's inspirational and writing yeah. down a, you know, brainstormed yeah. list and then trying to turn that back, reverse engineer that into a play doesn't work. So no, I kind of have to let the audience be the audience. You know, there's nothing up no. our sleeve. The, the show, the show will be exciting because these stories are exciting um, because yeah. that's because they're really happening because they're true. 
and because it's fun and it's joyful and because we as artists are so switched on by these stories and we're delighted to get to share it with people. But, you know, who knows how the audience will take it. I I love that there's a detachment there and that is, uh, you know, as much as we are, and and part of it is the structure we're speaking about, this idea of achievement and acquisition of stuff or money or whatever Mm. is in my view, as much as I ascribe to it and chase it, uh, not the way to feel happy or content. Um, it can make it easier, you know, mm. but it's not it. It's not, it's not sustainable. The, the idea that to be detached from that and just to be in the space of that, you know, just creating for the sake of it, that takes a lot of people a long time to get to. And look, I really understand. Look, I have done the whiteboard thing. Like I've fucking done that, you know, and, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, think so I don't know if you realize I'm very important. Before. I'm a very important person and people absolutely have to listen to what I have to say because it's really <laughs> yeah. smart. Um, no, you no, know, no just one to, has to listen to what artists have to say. No, honestly. No, no, one, no, no. no one needs to know our opinion about things. But I, I look, honestly, I think even just the curiosity, and I think there's two things. There's the one thing I think we've really kind of chatted about here that I really appreciate is that, approaching with curiosity, even something that's terrifying, even something that's got so many unknowns, curious of like, well, this would be interesting how this turns out. Mm. Like that's a way that I have found to go forward versus this is going to be terrifying. I don't know. Mm. Like it all looks pretty terrifying, but (laughs) I haven't walked over there yet. Let me walk over there and give it a sniff. It might be somewhat scary, not all terrifying, and there might be some parts about it that are kind of interesting. You know, I don't know yet. Interesting. 100%, 100%, no matter Fuck what, yeah. no matter no matter how kind of chaotic and, and ruinous and, and ridiculous the future is going to be, it will be fascinating. A lot of stories to tell too, man. Like, heaps <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. of stories to tell. Um, I'm so grateful that you made the time to do this, mate. Like, I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I'm working on the night. I got invited to your premiere. I said, look, I'm not going to be able to make it because no, I'm okay. working that night. But I'd fucking love to have him on. And they said, oh, he's in Germany. I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah. Like, well, can we do it? <laughs> and it happened. And so thank you for making the time to do this because it's only in human connection and only people feeling connected or related to a, com- a conversation about how the world is changing and has already begun changing and that, you know, here's two people talking about it and that it's not doom and gloom. I mean, we've spoken about doom and gloom shit, but it's not all been about doom and gloom shit. Mm. And, uh, and then it's good. I'm glad that people could hear it. And thank you for making the time, buddy. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Osha. I really appreciate it. And that was David Finnegan. If you want to check out Scenes from a Climate Era, the play, which is funny. Because <laughs> it fucking has to be. I mean, what else is it going to be? The tickets are in the show notes. The offer code, it still might work depending on when you're listening to this and time in history. It's like It's like Westworld. Literally, this is like Westworld. Like you're listening to this and it could be now. It could be a decade from now. It could be five years from now. It could be next week. It could be 20 years from now. You could be listening to this in 400 years. I hope you are because that means we made it. But yeah, I don't know if the offer code will work then. Maybe it will. Who knows? Big thank you to everyone at uh, the Belvoir Street Theatre for making this happen because they invited me to their premiere, but I was working and I wasn't able to make it to their premiere night for this play. And I said, well, look, I can't make it to the show, but if David was able to talk on the podcast, I could probably help in that way. And they went, yeah, and helped us find a time to speak from bloody Germany to Sydney. So amazing. Thank you so much to the guys at Belvoir Street Theatre who made that happen. And also big thanks to Bree Steele who researched this episode, Toe Hyder who made all the music, Andy Ma on audio and video post-production, and of course Rachel Barrett, the executor of execution of executive excellence. She's so good. Thank you, Rachel. You're awesome. <laughs>
I'll see you all on Wednesday and on Friday and then on Saturday in Newcastle. Let's do this. Gonna be great. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Tickets in the show notes. Get on it. Bye.